I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. So just the second book of your Bible and chapter 20. You'll need a Bible. We want everyone to own a Bible. So we have some for you. As the guys make their way to the back, if you need a Bible, just get their attention. They'll get one of those to you marked at Exodus 20. You can keep that Bible as our gift to you. Exodus chapter 20. That great theologian, Johnny Cash, described his taste in music as follows. He said, I love songs about horses, railroads, land, judgment day, family, hard times, whiskey, courtship, marriage, adultery, separation, murder, war, prison, rambling, damnation, home, salvation, death, pride, humor, piety, rebellion, patriotism, Larceny, determination, tragedy, rowdiness, heartbreak, and love, and mother, and God. Now this quote is interesting to me, perhaps because I see it as a summation of the human philosophy of life that pervades far too many lives, and in fact a philosophy that threatens the lives of even professing Christians. It's a philosophy that says, alongside everything else in life, there's God. God is viewed as just another entity in a world of many problems. God is just another number on the list of issues to deal with, just another item on the to-do list of life. He's just another item for us to attend to. Another song that's about giving advice from an adult to a young person, has a whole list of things one should do and ways one should react, but then adds, and give the heavens above more than a passing glance. I've often thought that many who profess Christ have simply added God to their agenda. I call it the all this and Jesus too approach to Christianity. In this mentality, the Lord is an add-on. We compartmentalize our lives, and God is just one of the compartments. I have my work compartment, and I have my recreation compartment, my family compartment, my finance compartment, my health compartment, and then there's also my spiritual or religious or God compartment. And I pay my homage to Him on most Sundays, that is, if I don't have anything better to do. Perhaps even literally paying by putting something in the collection, but after I leave... Then it's on to the other compartments where the Lord plays little, if any, role. This is sometimes referred to in counseling as real life, wherein the counselee tells me that the reason they're not fully devoted to Jesus is that they have to deal with and worry about real life. And apparently this is in contrast to devoted Christians and others that they've known who I guess don't know much about much of anything about so-called real life. There's you Christian types, and you devote yourself to all this stuff, but then there's real life. Hear this, friends. The Christian life is the most authentic, real, genuine life you can possibly live. And it's because it, in fact, is entirely based on reality. A reality that begins with the God who made us and His purpose for us. Instructions about which he placed in a book that most of you have in your hands right now. 
And Christians are people who have had their values and their worldview transformed by God. And rather than God being there to accommodate our agenda, as we all thought at one time in the past, we now reprioritize our lives to accommodate Him and His. This is why the famous Ten Commandments begins not with us, but with God. Verse 3 of Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me. And when Jesus was asked about God's law and which was the greatest commandment, he did not directly cite any one of these ten, but he indirectly cited them all when he replied this way, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, Love your neighbor as yourself. And I say that he indirectly cited all ten in that response because each of the Ten Commandments falls within one of these two categories of loving God and loving others. Loving God is the first and foundational commandment and a requirement to loving others. And in addition, God lovingly provides these for our good, as we're going to see in the commands that he gives directly regarding our relationships with one another. That's why I'm calling this series on the Ten Commandments, Laying Down the Love. Today we look at the first and most important of these commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's ask God to help us as we do. Our Father, we thank you that we are here and able and desirous of worshiping you because all of that has come from you. We thank you for what we've been able to do already in this hour in worshiping you through prayer, through reading, through praise, through giving. Now we ask you, Lord, to help us in our worship through proclamation. Help us to look to your word. We ask you to quiet our hearts, focus our minds. Help us, Lord, to focus on you because life began with you, is about you, and it's for you. And so we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We have inserted in your program an outline for the message. We have that every week. So if you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take it out. I say, first of all, this, the God we worship is unique. When the first of the Ten Commandments says we're to have no other God before God, it's not saying that there are actually other gods in the first place. But rather, it's telling us that we're not to concoct gods in replacement to or rival of the true and living God. The Bible is very clear that there really are no other gods. There are things and persons and stuff that are called gods or, if not called gods, are treated as gods. But there really are no such things as these gods. Psalm 96 says, all the gods of the nations are idols. So of all the so-called gods that people make, whether of wood or or metal, or stone, or that they make up just in their minds and enthroned in their hearts, there is still just one true God, the God who has made himself known in history. And this God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. With Abraham, you may recall, he made an agreement, a contract, a covenant, that although Abraham was childless at the time, his seed would be innumerable, And through that seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Abraham's grandson, Jacob, went to Egypt 
And Jacob had 75 descendants. And over several centuries of often cruel treatment, the line of Abraham had grown to about 2 million people by the time that God gives these Ten Commandments. And as they had languished as slaves in Egypt, being forced to work in the brick pits of mud without any aid, it was hard and sometimes even deadly labor for them. And yet the Bible tells us this. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And it's just months after God with a mighty hand freed his people from bondage. He gave them this command. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, in that context, it's instructive that God starts with this because God had just demonstrated his power over the idols of Egypt as each of the ten plagues that he brought on that nation were in direct defiance to one of their gods. He had shown himself to be unique. And with this commandment, he's saying that we must never forget that. The God that we worship is unique and that uniqueness is shown in a number of ways. I have some of those listed for you in your outline. The first is this. He is the covenant-keeping God. That is, he commits himself to a course of action and he's loyal to it. This is the God because he is God whose word can be depended on. What he says, he will do. The promises that he made to Israel back then, some of which are yet to be fulfilled, will indeed be fulfilled just as he has promised. In addition to promising Abraham a seed, he also promised that his descendants would inhabit a land. And God is orchestrating history and world events to bring about this very thing. We believe he will fulfill his promises in the future because he's always done that in the past. Friends, with finances, past performance is not a predictor of future results. But with God, indeed, past performance does predict future results. And so with regard to Israel in your New Testament, the Bible still says, as far as election is concerned, the Jews are loved for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. So what God has said he is going to do, he is going to fulfill. And this true and living God is the God of history, the covenant-keeping God who keeps his promises, but not only to Israel, but to us as well. So when God says, I have saved you, I have rescued you, I have delivered you, when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I've done that from the penalty of sin, and I've delivered you, rescued you, saved you from the power of sin, And he promises that one day I'm going to deliver you as well from the very presence of sin. When God says that, you can absolutely bank on it. It's a guarantee. Jesus said this when he walked the earth. I have come down from heaven to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I shall lose none of those he has given me. But raise them up at the last day. It will happen If you belong to Jesus. And as we saw two weeks ago, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so with God, unlike with us, there's no plan B. There need not be a plan B because nothing can thwart plan A. 
God is in complete control of all of the circumstances that impinge upon his plan. And in fact, he uses all of the circumstances to advance his plan. Every last one of them, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We have to create a plan B because we don't control everything that happens around what it is we're trying to do. Just yesterday, I officiated at a wedding, an outdoor wedding. There was a plan B. In case it rains, we're going to have to go inside. We're all going to have to hustle inside, and this is where we'll go. Thankfully, it didn't rain for the the ceremony, but there had to be a plan B because we don't control that. So who is this unique God that we are to worship exclusively? He is the covenant-keeping God, and he is also, I say in your outline, the creator God. We saw part of Psalm 96 and verse 5 earlier where it says all the gods of the nations are idols, but the entire verse says this. All the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Before he made his covenant with his people, there had to be a people with whom to covenant. God made them and us. He created the heavens and the earth and the first humans, and we are the products of that first miracle. And acknowledging that is foundational to all else that is true about God. And that's why, friends, creation, the doctrine, the notion, the truth of creation is so vehemently attacked because it goes to the very heart, the root, the foundation of who God is. If God is not the creator, hear this, then all Christianity is a myth. In Acts chapter 17, the Bible tells us that the great apostle Paul was taking a rest of sorts. He was on a holiday, you might say, as he was waiting in Athens, Greece, then the philosophical capital of the world. He was waiting there for his associates to join him, and then they would continue ministry. But even though he was off-duty, so to speak, Paul carried his worldview with him everywhere, every day, not just on Sunday. And he was therefore, the Bible tells us, quote, distressed and provoked at the idolatry that he saw in that city. And when he had an audience with the pagan philosophers there, he underscored the centrality of creation to the Christian system of truth. He didn't, to that audience, appeal to the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament promises that God made to Israel because they were unfamiliar with those. Rather, he went directly to what they did know and what all people know. God is their creator. And so Paul said this to these Athenian philosophers. He stood up and he started this way. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. And just prior to that, he introduced it, Paul did, by saying this. As I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Notice it says he proclaims, that is, he declares, he asserts. There's no debate. He begins where the Bible begins, in the beginning God. He feels no need to advance a philosophical proof because people were made to know their creator and so they have this knowledge of him inherently. But because of sin, they reject that 
and they create all sorts of gods. We're going to see not just material gods like they did in, in Athens. And in case they missed one area for these gods to cover, they even created one to the unknown God. The whole Bible takes for granted that all people know God by virtue of being creatures at the hand of the Creator. Now, to be sure, they rebel against this truth and do not worship Him as their Creator, but they rebel in spite of their knowledge that God has given. Romans 1 tells us that people suppress, they hold down this truth. It tells us that they are without excuse because they rebel against the knowledge God has given in creation. That evidence, the knowledge that God has given us in creation is everywhere available to people. God's signature and His tracks are everywhere in His creation and that creation only makes sense in the light of seeing it as His creative activity. So who is this unique God that we're to worship exclusively? He's the covenant-keeping God. He's the creator God. And He is the Christian God. Sometimes people say, I believe in God, I just don't believe in Jesus. (laughs) Now friends, Jesus is God. He is God and He is the only way to God. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus also said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. The Bible says that no one has seen God at any time, but God, the one and only Jesus Christ, has made him known. So please hear this. Belief in a generic God is not belief in the true and living God. There is a specific person who embodies all that God is, and he is Jesus. So the true and living God is the Christian God. Dwight Eisenhower said, quote, I think all people should believe in a God. And it doesn't matter much to me which God it is. Some philosophers have said we need to, they call it posit a God. Assume that there is one because it makes better sense of things. Indeed it does, but that's not believing in the true and living God who has come to us in Jesus Christ. Friends, please hear, Jesus Christ is God, the only God there is, and the one to whom the first commandment applies, you shall have no other gods before me, Jesus Christ. I'm glad that our country and its Pledge of Allegiance says we are one nation under God. I'm glad that our money says in God we trust. But please know, friends, that that doesn't mean that we're talking about the Christian God. And politicians and coalitions attempt to downplay the differences in order to enlarge the coalition, enlarge the support. And when Christians lose sight of this in their political zeal, they can make some amazing statements. The late Jerry Falwell Sr. was interviewed by a Christian periodical. Here's an excerpt of that interview. Falwell said, I have many friends Jewish friends and others who don't share my evangelical faith, but who do believe in God. And he was asked, but is it the God of the Bible? Falwell said, that's not the issue. You know, God says it is the issue. You can't believe in the true and living God and reject Jesus as Judaism, for instance, does. 
Allah is not God. And so we don't all believe in God if we don't believe in Jesus. And next time someone tells you that we do, take them to passages like John chapter 5 and verse 23, which says, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. If you don't honor Jesus, you're not honoring God at all. And so this God who is worshipped exclusively is not abstract. He's not generic. He has specifically made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul could tell the philosophers in Athens that God commands all men everywhere to repent. And he goes on to say that God has set a day when all the world will be judged by Jesus Christ and by how the world responded to him. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then perhaps what we've said so far is not uncomfortable to you. After all, you do Give your allegiance to the true and living God, Jesus Christ, not some would-be God by another name. Right? Well, okay. Or do we? Someone has said that preaching is comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. So we're comfortable so far. Prepare to be afflicted. If we examine the command to worship God exclusively a bit more, in fact, it can be very uncomfortable For us, all of us. So I say in your outline, the God we worship is unique, but also we must worship God alone. That means a couple of things that I have in your outline. The first is this, we must give ourselves to him alone. You see, friends, that means that we have no rivals for our hearts. The prophet Ezekiel said in Ezekiel chapter 14, that men and women, quote, set up idols in their hearts. So probably no one here would ever bow before an image. But ah, we can and do set up idols in our hearts. None of the religious variety of idols, but also none of the personal variety of idols can we create and erect in our hearts. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. And yet when we examine our lives, we see many things and many people that take us away from devotion to the Lord and thereby have become idols to us. So in giving ourselves to him alone, I say in your outline, it means we reject all rivals. Now I'm going to give you some examples. They're not in your outline. If you care to jot them down, that's up to you. I'm going to go through some examples of the kinds of idols that we erect in our hearts. These are just examples. There could be many, many more. Just a sampling. But I want to give you just four ways in which we especially are tempted. These are gods that we must consciously and intentionally reject. The first is we must reject the God of materialism. The God of materialism. This is the God of money. It's the God of have more, want more, get more. It's the God that causes people to kill themselves for more money and more possessions. Kill themselves in order to get it. Kill themselves perhaps because they didn't get it or they lost it. It's the God that causes credit cards to be maxed out. Church to be skipped for unnecessary work. It's the God that causes us to measure our lives by the abundance of what we possess. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells the parable of a man whose crops exploded in growth 
one year, and so he tore down his barns to build bigger ones. This man said, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But Jesus went on to say, But God said to him, You fool. This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? And Jesus concluded with this, So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This was a man whose God was his stuff and the acquisition of stuff. It's an ever-present temptation for us. We must remember the axiom, enough is always just a little bit more. Many of you remember the words we studied in the book of Ecclesiastes that all is vain, empty, meaningless apart from God. Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes, had everything. And in the end, he found that he had nothing. Many today are pursuing the God of materialism. Job said this. A Job who had been a wealthy man. It was all taken away from him. You remember very suddenly. But Job said this. If I have put my trust in gold or said... To pure gold, you are my security. If I have rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune my hands had gained, I would have been unfaithful to God on high. So if we pursue our lives that way, if we pursue the American dream, if we pursue even a modified form of the prosperity gospel, you know what I mean by that? Jesus is our tool to get us prosperity. Jesus is the avenue through which we get healthy and wealthy then we have been unfaithful to God on high. We must reject the God of materialism. Secondly, reject the God of pleasure. This might also be called the God of convenience. It's the God who demands that we please ourselves and make ourselves comfortable. It's the God of a way of life, the ease and comfort that a certain style of living brings. This is the God that says, I can't get involved in ministry because it would require too much of my time. It's the God that says, I can't get involved in ministry because I'd have to give up some of my lifestyle. It's the God that says, I can't really sell out to live for God because I'd have to change my habits. Listen, friends, our recreation and our leisure are good things, but they must never be more important than God and our service to him. Sometimes it's the pleasure of an immoral, illicit relationship. Sometimes it's the pleasure of laziness or ease. Sometimes the pleasure of freedom from commitment. But in all of that, it's all wrapped up in something Paul told his, told his protege, Timothy, in the last letter that Paul would write before he was executed. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 4, he said that one of the signs of the end times is that people will be, quote, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And that sums up the God of pleasure and it shows why it's idolatry. It's a lifestyle of feeding our appetites no matter what they are. We go on diets to lose weight and for health reasons. The truth is, if we're honest, some of us need to go on a diet for spiritual health reasons and give up some of the things that we believe we can't live without. Lesser things that are keeping us from more important things. We must reject materialism the God of pleasure, and thirdly, the God of relationships. The God of relationships. This God tells us that our relationship with someone else is more important than our relationship with God. 
Sometimes these relationships are the relationships of two single people who fall in love with each other. And in so doing, they cease to love God wholly. The relationship distracts them from loving God. Now, there are myriad ways in which that can happen. Someone comes into your life, young people, hear me. Someone comes into your life and you're infatuated with them. You fall in head over heels for them. And now you're giving all of your time for them without considering where that relationship with them fits into your most priority relationship, namely your relationship with God. And in turn, then, that affects how you pursue that relationship. In turn, that affects what you're looking for from that person in that relationship. Are you looking for someone who's going to move you forward in discipleship? You've heard me say many times, biblically, relationship is for discipleship. And so what I should be looking for in these relationships is someone who can move me forward in my relationship with God, not away from it. It might be a family relationship when we let our family dictate our relationship with God. More than one father has let his family dictate whether or not that family would pursue God as priority. More than one mother has driven a wedge between her family and God by ceasing to love God in the way she aids and abets her child's sin. Sometimes it can be a false definition of love. I'm loving my child by helping them go in the wrong direction. In our relationships, hear this, friends, we must love people for God's sake. When we love them for their sake or for our own sake, they have become our God and we end up needing them more than we actually love them or God. Materialism, pleasure, relationships, these are all just examples to which many more could be added. One final. We must reject the God of self. And this I mean the pursuit of self-worth by self-introspection. Today, the world is in search of the holy grail of self-esteem. Somehow, all of our problems will be solved if we just think better about ourselves. Now, I'm not advocating that you think badly about yourself. Here's, here's what the Bible advocates. Not that you think highly of yourself or think bad of yourself, but rather you think accurately about yourself. And the Bible teaches both of those. We're really bad and at the same time fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. An accurate view of ourselves. But this enthroning of ourselves is the essence of what is forbidden in the first commandment. In such a pursuit, we become our own God because our highest aim is focused on pleasing ourselves. Our goal is to be satisfied in our own goodness. We pursue good feelings about ourselves because we believe that We are, and what happens to us are most important. Our good traits become our God, not because we're perfect, but because we frankly adore ourselves. (laughs) I mean, you know, just look at what's on TV, if you must. And, you know, we make idols out of ourselves. I mean, we even have shows called that, American, right? And if you guys have heard me say before, I guess I prefer my idols to be American, if I'm going to have idols. But are American idols any better than any others? You know, I don't know if they have shows like this anymore, but they used to have the extreme makeover thing or the swan. And the idea was once and then you get to see yourself in the mirror. And almost every time someone looked in the mirror, they would say, and I'm only quoting what they would say because I consider this to be blasphemous, but they would say, oh, my God. And, you know, 
given where the values are, that's not just an exclamation. It's actually a statement of truth. What you're looking at in the mirror is your God. Or sometimes what you are writing on Facebook is your God. So I've said that Facebook could accurately be called Heartbook because it's revealing our hearts very often. And the temptation is to worship ourselves, to make ourselves the center of our lives. And everything is judged by our personal desires and our tastes and our conveniences. We find our spark of motivation, our spark of hope in ourselves. We anchor our evaluation of our lives in ourselves. And part of this God of self is seen when we make God in our own image. Our theology about God becomes determined by what we think is reasonable and right that God should do. In doing that, we end up adjusting the revelation that God has given about himself in Scripture. We redefine it or we outright deny it because the God we see in his book does not meet up with the God that's in our minds. A study of Bible college students showed that a majority of people surveyed believed that talking about hell and judgment was in, quote, poor taste. You see, friends, since when does taste define God and God's truth? And the net result of that kind of approach is that my understanding becomes the determinant of what God must be. Self is more important than God, and we end up with a theology of sort of intuition, my idea of God. Now, we could make this list infinitely long because our hearts are veritable idol factories that are always busy producing God replacements. We could mention that we find help in things other than God, like alcoholism, or mindless absorption in entertainment, or trusting in our own efforts to gain acceptance with God. But it doesn't matter what's on the list, and it doesn't matter what at this moment is occupying your heart and your mind and your energies. Whatever that is, if it is not the true and living God, then it violates God's very first commandment and is an idol. And Jesus put it very succinctly. Whoever is not with me, is against me. No one can serve two masters. You will have a God or gods. All of us will. The question is not will we worship. The question is what or whom will we worship. We were made to be worshipers. We will all worship someone or something. The question is will we worship the true and living God. And So here's your take home truth. Our lives come from God, and our lives are for God. Now, friends, we're going to pray in just just a moment. And as we do, I would encourage you, Christian friends, to take some time to think about whether or not you are holy, that is, whole, fully, committed to God And the mission that God has given us together to carry out in his world. Are you distracted by other stuff? Are you just living the American Christian approach to churchianity? That's what many of us are doing if we're honest about it. We have an opportunity to go to him now and confess that. To ask his forgiveness to repent now to go in a new way. I encourage you Christian friends to do that. If you've come into this room and you don't know Jesus Christ, then you don't know God. And if you say, I believe in God, the truth is that belief is empty if it's not directed to Jesus Christ, who is the embodiment, the literal embodiment of God. 
And so you must, you must come to God through God the Son, Jesus Christ. You come to him by believing who he is. He is God having come in the flesh. And he did what is necessary for you to have a relationship with God. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. He lived the life that you and I were supposed to have lived. And when you come to him believing who he is and what he's done, both of those are applied to you. The benefit of his death and the benefit of his life, his righteous life and his blood are both applied to you. So then you stand before God complete. Thanks be to God. And now you can have a relationship with him. And now you can live for him and simply for him. Not because you're trying to gain anything, because you've gotten everything from Jesus. But now out of gratitude for what he has done for you. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, our God, you alone are God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God. Three persons. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you have done and are doing. We thank you for God the Son coming to earth to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. We thank you for revealing yourself in Holy Scripture and revealing yourself in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for God the Holy Spirit who is continuing the work begun who takes residence in those who come to the Lord Jesus Christ and who works day by day to conform us to be like him. So, Father, we thank you for all of this. And we ask you, for those of us who name the name of Christ, to be completely devoted to him, to recognize the idols that rule our hearts and to reject them, to uproot them, to replace them with what's better. And Christ is always better. And I ask you, gracious Father, I ask you, God, the Holy Spirit, to move upon the hearts of some here who may have come into this room without knowing what a relationship with you is about. And now they know it's through Jesus Christ and his person and work. And I ask you to draw them to yourself as only you can do. Move upon their hearts so that right now they are asking your forgiveness for their sin, for their idolatry. They're committing themselves to you and that you are applying the benefits of the death and life of Jesus to them. Father, you are our God. Jesus, you are our God. Holy Spirit, you are our God. And we want to serve you the way you demand and the way you deserve. Help us to do that for your glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.